This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Welcome back to the Knowledge of Wharton Show. I'm Rachel Kipp. I'm Associate Editorial Director of the Knowledge of Wharton website. Our guest for this segment is novelist Gary Steingart. He's here to talk about his new book, which is called Lake Success. It focuses on Barry Cohen, a hedge fund manager with $2.4 billion under management, but his life and his business are on the verge of falling apart. He decides to run away from it all by spending the summer of 2016 on the Greyhound bus riding across the country. Gary, thanks so much for joining us on Knowledge of Wharton. Thanks. Great to be here. Now, why hedge funds? And why Greyhound, and why both together? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, hedge funds, because I live in Manhattan, and I've all my previous books have been sort of about life in New York. Uh, and in the last decade or so, I realized that the life that I, the, the friends that I usually have in Manhattan that I grew up with were gone. You know, everybody had sort of moved on because they couldn't quite afford to live here anymore, uh, moved to Berlin or you know, the Middle East or Los Angeles and um, or the Mid-Hudson Valley. And I thought, well, who's left? And I kind of looked around my building, my neighborhood, and I realized almost everybody works in finance or were somehow affiliated with finance. Maybe they were worked for a law firm that had, you know, finance as a client. So um, I decided to sort of get to know the financial industries and then um, the, the, the sort of the tops, of that industry were hedge funds and private equity, and I kind of fell in with a bunch of hedge funders, uh, became friends with them, and decided that my next character would be a hedge fund manager in great distress. And then why put him on the Greyhound? Well, the second thing that I realized was that um, after I'd gained a you know, fair amount of knowledge into the world of hedge funds was to delve into a character psychologically, uh, I thought it would be better for me to get him as far away from his money as possible. So various things happen to Barry, and he has to flee the city. He's being investigated by the SEC. He has a crumbling marriage. Uh, he finds out that his kid is autistic, uh, and he leaves, and he kind of run, makes a run for um, El Paso, where his ex-girlfriend, his college girlfriend, lives. And so I decided to put him, instead of putting him on a net jets or you know some kind of uh, high and way of traveling, I decided to put him on the most traumatic form of transportation in our country, and that is, of course, the Greyhounds. No, but you did say, I found a really interesting quote from you in The New Yorker, which is, if you want to try to figure out America, get on the Greyhound, or as you called it, the Hound. And mm-hmm. you actually did travel on the Greyhound while you wrote this book. What was that yeah. like? Yeah, so I got on the Hound, or the dog, as some call it. Um, uh, it was illuminating. I mean, it's um, you know, it's really something that a lot of people, who certainly people who live in this very rarefied world of finance or tech or uh, don't really get to experience, or if they have experienced it as young people, they, they want to forget it as, as quickly as possible. Uh, but it was a, it, there were a whole new set of rules. Um, it was sort of the opposite of, of being on a, say, the Acela or something like that. Um, it was um, it felt very militaristic. The, the bus driver would issue instructions, and you had to comply with them. And they often had to do with things like opening a can of tuna or sardines on the bus, or using profane language on the bus. It was a very monitored environment. Um, but the people were also very different. Some were very hopeful. Um, others, it was clear, had recently left a correctional facility or a mental institution and were sort of making their way across the country to reconnect with their families. So, you know, again, um, I wanted to kind of combine these two very separate worlds, the world of 
uh, of the very elite world of, of hedge funds and the uh, quite non-elite world of, of the Greyhound bus. I'll tell you, though, you know, um, after a while, I think I, I almost wanted to spend more time on the Hound than in Hedge World uh, because there was a kind of – I never knew what would happen next, uh, whereas in the world of finance, I think everything's felt very, very decided upon. Um, and, and there was a line in the book where Barry meets an architect in Greenwich, Connecticut, and the architect says, yeah, I only build houses for bankers because it's very easy. They have the same four houses, the same four cars, and the same four wives. Uh, and that's an actual quote I heard from, from an architect who actually caters to the people in hedge funds. Um, and I thought that was a, a kind of a perfect quote. Now, though, when you did get into hedge fund culture, when you got led into this world, I mean, were there things that surprised you when you broke in there? Um, there were, I mean, the big surprise was sort of just the, the general level of unhappiness that I encountered. That was kind of a surprise. I mean, uh, most of us know better than to equate having vast sums of money with, with happiness. In fact, studies show that uh, beyond a very modest level of income, I think it's something like 75000 although you would probably have to account for differences in places like New York or Palo Alto, but a very small amount of money beyond that, very little happiness accrues, a very little additional happiness, I should say, accrues or contentment. Um, but this was, you know, these people were stressed out. Um, many of their funds were not performing well, but also they really had very little connections with their families. They lived these very moated existences. Um, they didn't see beyond, often see beyond their Upper East Side apartment and their Midtown club and their Midtown fund and their um you know, their um, um, house in the Hamptons. And so it almost felt to me to sort of point out the intricacies of New York to them because they didn't really experience the city in, in a big way. So I would take them to my favorite bars and my favorite restaurants, which were, you know, not very expensive places, but lovely places nonetheless, and try to reacquaint them with, you know, the rest of humanity. Right. Now, I think I remember reading that you actually had some of them tell you not to invest in their funds. <laughs> I heard that quite a bit. You know, people would say, well, I can't really. And this was at a time, a, a year where funds were really getting hammered. You know, and you could have, the S&P was outperforming most of the funds I was covering by a huge, huge amount. Um, and, you know, so there was a, a level of depression there, too. But even when things were going their way, there wasn't a lot of um, of happiness. People, everyone was looking over their shoulder. Everybody was also very competitive with one another. And I mean, I know that's true in many industries, obviously. And, and you know, even writers can be competitive with each other. But here it was this, you know, they were, they were just, um, you know, there was, it was rare for anyone to say a kind word about anyone else. And even though all these people were supposedly friends, um, and, and that was, that was a little disturbing. Now, one thing, I, there's been a lot of stories in the news lately about kind of the hidden role that hedge funds play in a lot of industries like healthcare, mm -hmm. newspapers, retail. Oh. And I think the book touches on that a little bit. And I'm actually going to, I guess I'm wondering from you, like what you think the implications of that are. But first, I'd like you to read a mm -hmm. short passage from the book. And just to set this up, this is when Barry has found himself in Atlanta and he's trying mm -hmm. to reconnect with somebody he once mentored who ended up getting fired from his yeah. fund, and he's hoping yeah. to get what he calls a, I think it's a bridge fund or a bridge loan. When a bridge really, loan. Yeah, he really, he just wants to borrow money. Yeah, but anyway, I'll have money basically. Right, and I'll have you read that, and then I like love to get your answer. Sure. Um, so this is uh, his former employee who was fired for making a, a, a critical mistake on an Excel spreadsheet. 
that's how I think of people like you. I always have the same visualization. I start with a row of middle-class houses, like the one my dad lives in, and then I see you. You go from house to house, from family to family, and you take money from their wallets, from their purses, from under their sofa cushions, and you put it into your pockets. And when your pockets are full, you put in a duffel bag with the logo of your fund. You don't sneak in. You don't break in. You just walk amongst these people as if they're invisible, and you take the money they've earned, and then you go home and you buy a watch or whatever. Well, I'll start by saying that a lot of the investments that many of the people I was following were making were quite morally dubious. I mean, there was – or put to put it differently, there was no moral – compass in making these decisions. So um, a lot of these, uh, there were, for example, medical companies that were clearly benefiting shareholders at the expense of actual patients. Uh, some of these were fraudulent and, 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 you know, and would later fall apart. But as soon as they sensed that there was money to be made, they jumped, they all piled into the very same trades. Um, then there was also the feeling that a lot of these people, because they had made a few good trades, even though many of them, their lifetime profit and loss statements were in, in the negative, sometimes probably in the negative hundreds of millions. So in the long term, they hadn't made a lot of money for their investors. They'd lost money for their investors. But because they'd made one great trade here or there, they felt that that entitled them to being sort of arbiters of anything. So, you know, working with charter schools in Manhattan, trying to launch um, different educational initiatives. And in, in Lake Success, in my novel, I kind of lampooned that a bit. Uh, so Barry, he's a watch fanatic. And he wants to start something called the Urban Watch Fund, where he wants to introduce poor kids uh, to their first Rolex, right. uh, you know, to, to help them take care of their first mechanical watch, or their first high-end mechanical watch. So that becomes kind of <laughs> his idea, his idea of giving back. But all these, you know, it didn't feel so much as charity as just wanting to be proven right in front of their peers on on some on some harebrained scheme, uh, and whether or not people benefit from that almost seemed to be beyond the beyond the point. You're listening to The Knowledge of Wharton Show, Sirius XM, Channel 132, Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Rachel Kipp. I'm Associate Editorial Director at The Knowledge of Wharton website, and we're here with novelist Gary Steingart talking about his new novel, Lake Success. Now, going on what you were just saying about, I think this novel has a lot in it about wealth and what wealth means and what what does it mean when the wealthy people figure out, are the ones controlling what happens. And I guess to touch on your last answer, I mean, you know, with Barry's watch fund, I mean, he's kind of deciding what he thinks people need, and it's probably not what they really need. And I guess, what do you think happens when we have just a couple of rich people who are maybe using their private wealth to decide what the world's problems are, and maybe they're not really what the problems are? Well, I mean, in this country, and I think more than in other countries, we place such an emphasis on financial success above everything that we really think that people who are successful financially have all the answers. And conversely, I think we feel that people who are poor are somehow morally dubious. There's something wrong with them. Uh, that, that there's something something in their values didn't work for them. It, we blame them for, for their own problems and, and, and for society's ills. But at the same time, we celebrate anyone who makes a lot of money. I mean, our current president, uh, you know, uh, rose to power part, partly by uh, extolling his, his wealth uh, and, and his well, I would say questionable business acumen. I know he's a, a graduate of your school, but um, you know, there's a feeling definitely that we trust people who have a lot of money. Uh, Mike Bloomberg, who, of course, in, in my mind, is 
is, is you know, uh, a much better manager than, than Donald Trump and than, than other uh, business people. He actually created a product that everyone uses or that people in finance use. Um, also thinks that he has a great chance now of becoming a president and is starting to explore this, this possibility. But I think the, the track record hasn't been great. Um, I think people... I think elective office may require other qualities than just success in business. Uh, the country, the city, the, the, the states, they're not companies. They're something quite different, and, and, uh, and they require a different sense of stewardship, I think, than, than people who, who run companies. Um, so my feeling of, uh, after living in the hedge fund world for, for quite a while was that um, being very successful in, in, in any level of finance does not automatically predispose you to a career in politics. Now, it's interesting. So you, so Barry takes his trip and you took your trip and it was in the summer of 2016. So what was that like and how did that develop being as the election was just yeah. about to happen and things turned out in a way that a lot of people didn't expect? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I definitely felt that by the end of the journey, and I started in June in New York and ended in September in uh, San Diego, um, that during those four months, uh, you know, I started out as, as most New Yorkers did, thinking that Hillary was was going to win, that uh, Trump was kind of a joke candidate, that the GOP was mistakenly fielding. But by the end of the journey, um, you'd meet so many people, especially outside of the bubbles of New York and California, who were telling me otherwise. I mean, I would point to 538 and all those websites and say, "Look, she's she's going to win," and they'd say, "No," and they would be very granular about it. They'd say, "Well, she's going to lose Pennsylvania." Uh, in Wisconsin. I said, what the, are you kidding me? Pennsylvania and Wisconsin? Um, but the mood was quite different when you left the coasts, for sure. Um, so, which is another reason I think, I, I, I don't ever believe that there's this idea of the real America. I think New Yorkers are as real as, as anyone else, Californians are as real as anyone else. But there's definitely different Americas. And I think traveling across the country on the hounds is a great way to sort of see the totality of our country, which is often beautiful and often often not. Now, as Barry is on the bus and as he is interacting with people, one thing that comes up over and over is this idea of, well, if I could just teach them about capitalism, if they could just understand capitalism, they would understand what I do. And I guess, do you feel like he understands capitalism? And what does it mean for us if the country is hewing closer to his version rather than some other version? Well, I think, you know, I think the, the fact that people don't have a good financial understanding that many people, and I would say most people don't, is a big problem. Um, you know, I think you know there are statistics that many Americans don't have enough money to cover uh, a roof repair. That they're just you know, not to mention any kind of uh, you know med- medical problem that that they or their families may face. Um, I think this creates for a kind of less informed electorate that that will elect somebody like our current president because they don't quite understand how. How, how capitalism works. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm not against all aspects of capitalism. I'm not for all aspects of capitalism. I mean, I think there's, uh, there's good and, and bad things about it. Uh, but figuring it out means first understanding a little bit about how the system works. Um, and that means knowing a lot about finance, knowing something about technology. Um, all these things should really be baked into our I mean, it should start. It should start in elementary school. I, I know that there are versions of this, but it should be emphasized because this is something that everybody lives with, and this is something that voters get to decide on as well. So, um, 
definitely um, economic education is, is very, very important. And I think anyone who, you know, any college graduate should have at least one course in econ under their belts. I know that's required in some places, but it should, it should really be required everywhere. Now, one thing I thought was interesting is there's a lot of um, rich people, very rich people in the book, and not necessarily Barry, but some of the other characters who they come from very middle class backgrounds. And you kind of hear them romanticizing that a little bit, but then it also kind of reflects on how disconnected they've become from that. And do you feel like that's sort of reflected in our society as well? Yeah. I mean, look, you know, there's a, there's a, a lot of the wealthy people I've met. Uh, I would say, I would say the very, very vast majority of them came from a very similar background as I did. You know, that, that's maybe one reason I was able to, to enter their world so easily. You know, I grew up uh, an ambitious immigrant kid. Uh, I went to Stuyvesant High School, which is a kind of math and science high school that's mostly immigrants, a lot of Asian immigrants, uh, and a lot of the people I met were fell into those categories as well. Um, and in fact, at a recent high school reunion, I realized that a large proportion of my fellow graduates of my high school were now working in finance. So, um, But also, we all grew up not rich. In fact, poor or lower middle class were sort of standard things, often living in kind of the edges of places, like just outside of major city like New York or Moscow or a Rome or, you know, somewhere, Pompeii. Um, and I, I think those things, that feeling of being sort of slightly on the outside, having a chip on your shoulder, you know, often not getting all the love that you would want from your parents, um, I think those were all economic or psychological traits that registered, that, that were a part of most of the people I met. What? Uh, there was definitely a kind of profile of a hedge fund person, of a successful hedge fund person. There's certainly a lot of intelligence required, but there's also, I think, a feeling of, bottomless wants that can't really be satisfied by anything. Well, it seems like with Barry, like, it seems like he did start out, he has some smarts, he's not a dumb person, but then he sort of seems to have put that aside to some extent on being and focused more on being, I guess, what he calls like the friendliest guy in the room. (laughs) Like, he's kind of left behind his common sense or his smarts or his number side to focus on the relationships, and that's almost what leads him astray in a way. Well, it is important. I mean, there are obviously quants in this industry and, and, and who, whose you know, main qualification is a Ph.D. in math or physics. And those are some of the, the smarter people I've met and, and some of the more, um, you know, they, they, it's not that they were helping, but they, had, they approached their trades and their, um, their work as a kind of intellectual exercise, which at least gave them some measure of satisfaction. Because if they hadn't got into hedge funds, they'd, they'd be working probably in academia or something like that. But um, for... But then there's the people who are mainly rainmakers. Their whole job is basically to raise funds and 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 their raise capital. And they're to do that, they have to fit a certain kind of backslapping bro culture, you know. And and um, and often these people aren't very good at, at the the number side or understanding how these investments work or generating, you know, creating alpha for their for their investors. And often they would say horrible things about their investors. Even as they would lose money for them, they would sort of lash out at them for their, you know, for their risk aversion and things like that. Um, and they would tell me, as you mentioned, you know, they would say, "Hey, don't, don't invest with me. I, uh, just stick to low cost, low, uh, you know, low cost index funds, and, and I think you'll do fine." Um, so there wasn't, there wasn't. I mean, there and there are certain funds that that have consistently performed well, but there are not that many of them. Mm-hmm. Now, I wanted to make sure we had a chance to talk a little bit about the other main character of the book, which is Barry's wife, Seema, mm-hmm. and she kind of alternates chapters with him. Why was it important to you to have kind of that dual focus on her? Well, the book is about finance. In some ways, it's about, you know, the state of our nation after 2016. Uh, but it's also, you know, 
it's also about a family because I think all good novels uh, aspire to be novels about the relationship between partners and husbands and wives and you know children and parents and all, all this stuff is, is I think of primary interest to the novelist. So having Barry's wife and especially uh, since Barry's on the road, she has to she's left in New York and she has to sort of pick up the pieces of. of not just the marriage, but the fact that she has a disabled son who is a nonverbal and autistic, and she has to take care of him. So I kind of wanted that the kind of counterpoint. You know, Barry's on the road trying to find himself, but his wife is in New York actually taking care of business. Not, not, right. She doesn't have time to find herself. <laughs> she, doesn't have, she doesn't have time to find herself because she's actually you know, raising a kid with, with, a, with, a, with a disability. Um, but the other thing that I noticed uh, when I was researching Franzen, at first I, I toyed with the idea of having the main character be a woman, but uh, most of the, first of all, there weren't that many uh, you know, female portfolio manage, managers that I met. Um, and the ones that I did meet were actually pretty good at their jobs. They didn't make these stupid trades that would blow up in the end. They were actually, I don't know, maybe it was, they weren't doing these horrible testosterone fueled trades that were bound for failure. They were actually investing quite wisely and beating the S&P, if not spectacularly, but, but doing quite well, you know, quite reasonably. Um, and I always meet characters who are on the verge of collapse. So these women obviously were not going to fit the bill, but men were you know, right. uh, on the verge of collapse. So that, that wasn't a problem. Oh, uh, the other thing I noticed is that, like, you know, Seema is a graduate of Yale Law School. She's super smart. And it, it could be said that she's actually a lot more successful, a lot smarter than Barry is. And I think that that's true um, of... Uh, of many of the women that I met. Uh, but there was a kind of almost feudal dynamic in that even though many of them were hugely successful and many in finance, uh, many were you know, working at Goldman and other places and doing quite well for themselves, upon marrying their husbands who were making a, a fortune even while losing money for their investors, they would give up their careers and they would sort of focus on you know, curating the life of their family or something like that, which to me felt very feudal. It felt very strange to see this in the middle of Manhattan, which we think of as kind of a cutting-edge city, a very progressive city, but not really. Not not in this world. Mm-hmm. You're listening to the Knowledge of Wharton show. I'm Rachel Kipp from Knowledge of, the Knowledge of Wharton website, and we're talking with novelist Gary Steingart. So one final question for you about, with, and I wanted to focus on SEMA, is that I think I, most of your novels previously have been about the immigrant experience, your immigrant mm-hmm. experience, other people's. I thought she, her character might have some, had some interesting things to say about kind of the first-generation American experience. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about yeah. that a little bit? Yeah, and I think that partly, um, I mean, I was born in Russia and I came to the United States when I was seven years old, but I, I've always thought myself very much an immigrant because we only, we grew up only speaking Russian in the house, and, uh, you know, I didn't lose my accent until I was much older. And uh, this was the first book that I wanted to have, not an immigrant, but a first-generation American uh, story. And I think it's in part because I, I, uh, I, when I started, since I started writing this novel, I've had a kid, he's, he's four years old, um, uh, but he was the first, he's the first generation to be born in this country. Um, and to me, there was something exciting about that, having a, a progeny who's uh, an American, but who has you know, some connection to the immigrant experience through his dad. Um, and so to research uh, this book, I have many friends who are Indian or Tamil, to be specific. And so I've spent a lot of time with them, with their families, uh, inside their kitchens, uh, because the food is quite delicious, uh, traveling to India, traveling to Tamil Nadu. Um, and I think that helped to form the backbone of that character for sure. Great. Gary Steingart, thanks so much for being with us. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Gary Steingart is the author of the new novel, Lake Success. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.